The year is 1673, and high on the Odenwald mountain range in southern Germany, a professional alchemist, Johann Konrad Dippel, is hard at work creating an animal oil, which he humbly calls Dippel's oil, that he believes to be the elixir of life. Later he will attempt to trade this oil for the castle he was born in, known to locals as the Frankenstein Castle. But beyond practicing alchemy, Dippel was working on something else, spending nights clouded by fog, hidden in the remote protection of the mountains, digging up dead bodies and performing experiments on them. Or so the legend goes. There are a lot of myths about Dippel, and locals still claim a particular strike of lightning had brought one of these bodies back to life, and that the story was later related to Mary Shelley's stepmother by the German ethnologist, the Brothers Grimm. There are many, many other stories about the castle. A medieval knight, Lord George, defeating a violent dragon who lived in its garden between stunts terrorizing the local townspeople. After hours of exhaustive battle, they both fell to the ground, and Lord George unexpectedly dealt a last fatal stab to the dragon's belly, but at the same time, the dragon's poisonous tail swept against him. They both died, and the grave of Lord George still graces the castle. Behind the castle's herb garden lies a fountain of youth where old women from nearby villages test their courage on the first night of the full moon after the eve of St. Walpurgis. There have been ghost hunters' investigations which reported paranormal activities and German-speaking ghosts. A gold rush hastened by fortune tellers' reports of treasure buried near the castle and reports of phenomena caused by a magnetic stone behind the castle which causes compasses to stop working even today. Even the term Odenwald comes from the woods of Odin, a reference to the god of sorcery in Germanic mythology. Who knows what went through 17-year-old Mary Shelley's mind when she may have first fixed her eyes upon the castle as she traveled along the Rhine, but it's likely that the myths surrounding the life-creating alchemist and inventor sparked her imagination. Frankenstein, the novel she would continue to write in Geneva, has now become a classic, one of the great gothic and horror novels of all time, but also arguably the first true work of science fiction. Many have argued that Victor Frankenstein's invention can also be framed as a foretelling of AI, if not the first, at least a notable one. Regardless of how much Mary may have been exposed to the myths surrounding the Frankenstein castle, they introduce many of the themes that also arise in her novel, an esoteric eeriness that questions the limitations of human knowledge, the body, the boundary between this world and all that is possible, the relationship to the eeriness of the other, whether that be a dragon, a dead body, a ghost, or a new inconceivable form of life altogether. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Frankenstein's Daughters. I'm your host, Maria. I'm a student at AUC focusing on humanities, specifically on literature and philosophy. But my primary academic frame throughout my studies has been futurism. I'm really interested in conceptions of time throughout the eras and the way that ideas about the future interact throughout different time periods. 
Um, I'm especially interested in the relationship between literature and uh, culture in general and science, the way that this influences the scientific discourse and vice versa. And um, especially linguistic evolution, AI, posthumanism, the history and economics of utopian politics, and just general cultural utopian and dystopian imaginaries. So I want to focus in this podcast, which started out as an undergraduate research project in podcast form, on exploring the relationship between the Victorian Gothic and posthumanism, specifically what posthumanism can teach us about the Victorian Gothic and vice versa. So the reason that I wanted to focus on this uh, all stemmed from a course that I took in my second year called Literature and Science. Uh, I took this course with Dawn Skrakowski, who's also my supervisor for this project, and I want to thank her for all of her help and support with overseeing my research. And I yeah, want to begin by giving some context, I guess, about the course and how that led me here. So taking Literature and Science uh, was the first time that I really thought about how synergistic the relationship between culture and science can be. And I had never thought about the importance of literature and the ethical scientific discourse before as much as I did in this course. Uh, we covered everything from AI to cloning, and it was really enriching. And what I especially appreciated about the course structure was that we began by reading Frankenstein, and we finished the course by reading Frankenstein by Jeanette Winterson. And having these two books as the bookmarks of the course uh, created a really beautiful arc. And Frankenstein, Frankenstein was a really imaginative retelling of the original Frankenstein, which took a lot of themes of AI and all of the um, politics surrounding it in the present and f near future to an extreme. And I thought it was a really well done uh, retelling. And uh, the whole course really sparked my imagination um, in the realm of literature and science. And so this project is sort of an extension of a lot of the themes that Dawn introduced to me in that course. And um, because it's it's an academic research project, it is very source heavy. But I also wanted to use podcast as a medium to make some of these very uh, dense sources a little bit more digestible and fun. And I also wanted to explore, um, yeah, making academia a little bit more entertaining and using a multimedia uh, approach to this. But I'm still going to be citing academic articles and an appendix that I'll include with each episode so that um, my sources are clear. And I'm also going to include my email address for this podcast, which is frankensteinsdaughters at gmail.com. So feel free to contact me if you have any questions, corrections, comments, or you would also like to be interviewed for an episode or have an episode idea. So delving more into the themes of the podcast, why the relationship between posthumanism and the Victorian Gothic? This started out as sort of a speculative hunch on my end when I was just drawing connections between the two themes and some of my own research and writing. And uh, I think both, both terms are a little bit difficult to clearly define, but they seem easy to connect because to me, both posthumanism as a kind of uh, school of philosophy and critique and sometimes this ethical framework and the idea of the Victorian Gothic are dealing a lot with ideas of time and social responsibility, 
technological progression, social anxieties, the boundary between the human and other, fears of human evolution or de-evolution. So I think there's a lot of common threads when it comes to the relationship between culture and science. Um, as I mentioned, each of these terms are a little bit nebulous, uh, beginning in a historical sense with the Victorian Gothic. Uh, the word Gothic, of course, originated initially when speaking of architecture. Um, specifically, uh, it was a term that arose in the Renaissance to describe certain types of art and architecture from the Middle Ages. So there was already this idea of conversations and critiques throughout time and this retrospective attitude of superiority. As Fred V. Randall notes in his essay, The Political Geography of Horror in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we see then this shift from Gothic as referring to architecture, this uh, scornful idea in in the Renaissance of Northern European barbarians with a particular reference to the Germanic and the medieval um, and then in the late 18th and early 19th century, the English Protestant writers uh, tend to set their Gothic fictions in Catholic Southern Europe, uh, while keeping the terms crucial association with the archaic and the oppressive. So Gothic then becomes something which is uh, shifts regionally, nationally, and becomes associated with these types of sectarian mythologies. But it was characteristically used to align the author and the reader with the supposedly enlightened against the anachronistic and benighted. The progression from one term to the other isn't uh, abundantly clear to me um, how this linguistic evolution occurred. Um, but I guess there's, there's yeah, this idea of, of spiritual awe of enormity uh, that that takes place in inside a vaulted gothic cathedral of the smallness and powerlessness of the self and this general sense of awe and wonder uh, but also fear that continues in in gothic literature so in gothic literature we see these themes especially of death and decay haunted homes and castles family curses madness powerful love and romance as its own life-wielding force, uh, ghosts and vampires, of course. The genre is said to have become popular in the late 18th century with the publication of Horace uh, Walpole's novel The Castle of Otranto in 1764. And then after this, we have a whole flurry of Gothic literature, notably Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, among a lot of other works um, exploring the boundary between human and other, and uh, these other romantic themes. As I mentioned earlier, defining what exactly the Victorian Gothic consists of is nebulous and a little bit tricky. So I'll be mostly operating within the roughly determined time period of the Victorian period from 1837 to 1901. But uh, of course, that's not an exact boundary for me. And themes of the Gothic occur all throughout history. So although the Victorian Gothic will be my primary focus, um, there's also things that I'll talk about from every era, um, from the Edwardian era and um, from the distant past and far future. But uh, yeah, fo I'm focusing specifically on the Victorian period and consequently events and literature that uh, took place in Victorian England during this time, which is of course a very limited scope. But I think that there, that in this case, it's it's uh, fruitful for the purpose of my research to focus um on some examples from a specific place and time, because my other lens of posthumanism is so broad. 
So placing ourselves in Victorian England, we're of course emerging from the Industrial Revolution from roughly 1670 to the early to mid 19th century. And there's this transition from hand production methods to machines, uh, the emergence of chemical manufacturing, iron production processes, uh, steam power, water power, machine tools, uh, the whole mechanized factory system, etc. And then, of course, you have this rise in population growth and um, all of these new emerging industries like the textile industry, um, changes in employment, value output, capital invested, etc. And of course, the Industrial Revolution, beginning in Great Britain, uh, where many of these technological innovations are accelerating, um, also spurs a lot of very fast cultural evolution and shifts. And we see a transition away from the Georgian rationalism and towards this um, potentially reactionary romanticism and mysticism, where uh, religion, social values, and the arts are all being um, viewed in, in a lens of, of romance and inexplicable, unconceivable powers and feelings. Uh, but at the same time, we have this idea of Victorian values of social and sexual restraint and um, privacy, uh, family secrets, uh, properness, politeness, etc. And so we have these two conflicting um, social uh, ideas occurring at the same time. And then in the middle of all of this, we of course also have Darwin's theory of evolution and this um, groundbreaking eruption that um, starts to completely untangle the fabric of Victorian society amidst everything else that's happening and sparks all of these new uh, social anxieties. This of course affects religion, it affects scientific rationalism, it affects um, every discourse, but it also spurs these social anxieties of degeneration theory. This idea that if we can evolve over time, we can also devolve. And this leads to a lot of uh, fast spreading and problematic social anxieties about um, human morality. And this, of course, reinforces a lot of these already very strict Victorian values. And all of this really affects art and literature. At the same time, there's this optimism, um, this idea that is in the present reflected in steampunk literature and the belief that machines and these new forms of power can be so transformative that there's this unlimited potential for social growth and improvement. Of course, this is a very, um, a very limited optimism that is only benefiting a very specific group of people. But there is a shift uh, towards futurism and the idea that because machines can accelerate progression so quickly, that there should be more time and energy than ever spent on imagining what the future of Britain is going to look like. And this leads to a, a lot of, I guess, what could be described as early cyberpunk imagery. Uh, you, you see these illustrations of uh, the future of transportation, of, of people floating around on hot air balloons. You see the human-animal boundary reimagined, uh, engravings of Victorians riding around on alligators. So there's, there's a lot of uh, reimaginings taking place in the Victorian Gothic. And all of these themes I want to connect to the lens of posthumanism. So why posthumanism and what exactly does it mean?
This is, of course, also a really difficult concept to define. Uh, it can be thought of as, as meaning after humanism, beyond humanism. And uh, according to the philosopher Francesca Ferrando, who's a premier expert on posthumanism, there are seven different definitions. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there's basically the idea that uh, posthumanism can be something cultural, a kind of cultural critical theory that critiques ideas of inherent humanness, human nature, human subjectivity, etc. We also have philosophical posthumanism that's like a philosophical direction, drawing on cultural posthumanism, focusing on these ethical implications of expanding the circle of moral concern beyond human species, um, not conceiving of, of humans as the center of the world and expanding our ethics based on that. Uh, we also have the idea of a post-human condition as like the deconstruction of the human condition through this framework. And there's also, of course, a lot of focus within all this discourse on the idea of an AI takeover. And um, some philosophers like Nick Land uh, have promoted the idea that we should embrace and accept the eventual demise of humanity. And this, of course, relates to the idea of, of cosmism, um, which argues that building a strong artificial intelligence is, is necessary or uh, ethical or good in some sense, even if it leads to, to the deconstruction and the end of humanity, because it would be a cosmic tragedy if humanity freezes evolution at the puny human level. So this, of course, uh, all ties back very significantly to all these ideas that were occurring in the Victorian time period about evolution and de-evolution from a very human-centric point of view. But we already saw, see in the Victorian period a lot of themes emerging that reconsider the relationship between the human and the other and the human-animal boundary. Um, so I really want to look at this idea of, of uh, post-humanism and the shifts that occurred in the Victorian era through this lens. So this podcast is going to cover a lot of different realms in order to illustrate this relationship, everything from ecology to conceptions of gender to architecture, fashion and self-fashioning, and of course, literature. So this episode was just an introduction to the themes of the podcast, and in the next episode, I'll be fully delving into the namesake book, The OG Frankenstein, and reading it as a representation of AI and seeing what that tells us about the current discourse on AI, gender, the body, monsters, cyborgs, robots. Uh, I'll be putting that in conversation with Donna Haraway's Cyborg Manifesto, doing some psychoanalysis on Mary Shelley, and just going all over the place and looking at some other uh, modern and futuristic adaptions of Frankenstein. So I hope you will join me next week for that. And in the meantime, I want to leave you with a poem called Frankenstein's Daughter, published in 1984 by Karen Whiteson in the Feminist Review. My maker's tyranny over me was the sad weight of him, lying like a blanket, heavily, imbued with his own smell, immobile. He labored over my stubborn material. He drew a blueprint from my body, sketched in organs that flourished like blots from ink. My lungs revolted at the rotting stuff his breath produced. I could not make him see the monstrosity I was, 
already a disguised thing, when, from his laboratory table, I rose, a metaphorical creature, a rough diamond gloved in fantastic skin, displaying stitching along the stitching of my harlequin bones, a patched-together doll, reanimated by the hum of a rusty tune, I visited myself upon my own flesh and blood, looting the junk shop of ancestral corridors, sleeped in portraits and the raw stench of something red and old, I fed at the table of the tallest stories, entirely consumed the chart of the digestive system, the insoluble sum of the brain swims inside my head, grows bulbous with contradictory arrows as the equation is stretched to cover the human form.